This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. It's past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on three triple hour on barbecue day. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And I'm Bron Burton. How are you, Bron? I'm a little crusty today. Are you? Yes. I've seen photos of you at um, an <laughs> 80s party last yes, night. Yes. <laughs> Happy birthday, Theo. If you're listening, you're not listening. I know you're not listening. <laughs> it was a big one. It was a zero birthday. A zero? A zero for one Theo. One of them with a number a in zero front of it. for Theo. Uh-huh. It was. And oh, he looked resplendent. In the 80s? Yeah. And tell me, what did you wear? Well, I kind of, being a Doncaster girl, and I'm, this is no commentary on Doncaster oh, no, hey. in 2015. Absolutely not. But Don, I wore what was basic streetwear in Doncaster in the mid-1980s, which was the double <laughs> acid wash denim. Yeah. I, I wore the blonde wig. I, I kind oh, of I wanted it. to always be the blonde rock chick, and I never grew up as the blonde rock chick. So I went as kind of think Kim... Khan's oh, wow, yes. meets mid-80s Doncaster. So yeah. I managed to actually... So a bit, bit Kim Khan's at Shopping Town. Yes, yeah. <laughs> very much so, with a, with a, a Chico roll. Oh, kind of, sensational. Yeah. And I managed to find these great black kind of stiletto shoes with studs on them that oh, matched... Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it was it was fun. 
And so, yeah, great. Lots of 80s, lots of neon. It brings it all back. Because yeah. listeners may or may not know, but Bron and I, unbeknown to each other, both grew up yes. in Doncaster <laughs> in know. the 80s. So this is just a kind of a moment of kind of specialness, really. It, well, it we didn't is. know each other then. No, but, you know, well, we went hey, to different primary schools. The formative years in Donny. And you were on the cool <laughs> side of Shopping Town. I was on the oh, okay. I was on the East Doncaster side of Shopping See, Town. See, I had no idea being in West Doncaster was cool. Yeah. Well, East Doncasterians, <laughs> is that a word? I don't know, is now. thought the West Doncasterians were pretty cool. Well, there you go. Mm. Oh, find out something new every day. <laughs> hey, and hopefully on today's show... Yes. Um, listeners will find out something new beyond that you were Kim Carnes at Chopping Town yeah, last night. I went night. the big hoop earrings too. <laughs> that actually hurt. I'm going to make a confession. I think I've still got a pair. Have you? Yeah. I should have borrowed yours. <laughs> Although they're not gold. Gold just doesn't go in the No, skin. these weren't gold. Yeah, you have big silver ones. They might have once been gold. <laughs> <laughs> they looked a bit crusty as well. Love it. Yeah. Anyway, we are going to do a show yes. about marine things, not the 80s today. Um <laughs> Um, it's a big one. We've got lots of stuff on. We do. So you want to kick off? I will. Shortly uh, in studio, we're going to be joined by Lance Lloyd. He is with a group called Save Our Sea Eagles, SOS, and um, oh, yes. drawing attention to the plight of the white-bellied sea eagle in particular. So they're listed as endangered. They have a very interesting breeding cycle in that they don't actually nest anywhere near the sea. So Lance can talk a bit more about that. Wow. But there's a particular wetland which this group is very focused on. Uh, drawing some attention to and getting some support for conservation um, because it is a critical breeding site and it's under threat at the moment. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then I've been doing a little bit of research. You know, there's this oft-quoted thing, oh, we know nothing about the bottom of the ocean. Um, well, I've just been having a look about how much do we not know and how much do we know. Just a couple of facts. It was a really interesting conversation in the conversation a couple of months ago about this. So I got a few stats if we've got time to squeeze them in. Great. And then um, Greg Hunt is joining us. Greg Hunt is not the Federal Environment Minister. There's another Greg Hunt who lives on down that way and works down that peninsula as well, um, who is the executive officer of a thing called SECA, the South East Council's Climate Change Alliance. Okay. And I thought in this week where, you know, Malcolm Turnbull and Barack Obama and everybody's strutting the world stage in Paris, talking about the future and climate change, we'd actually have a look at a group that's doing some real climate change action on ground. Excellent. So um, Greg will be in about 9.30. I like the name Seca. Seca. It's very Many. 80s. I reckon I would have had a friend called Seca. Seca. <laughs> How are you, Seca? <laughs> but it would have been short for something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It I can't been think a, what it would have been. It would have been a choice between Bluey or Seca. Seca. Yeah, you know, Seca. You know, Seca. Yeah. First thing, Donnie. Yeah. Yeah, Donnie. How are you, mate? How are you, Seca. You can throw in a few profanities, but not at a family-friendly time slot. Seca. Seca, mate. Seca. It's going to go on all day. <laughs> we both need more sleep. Me too. Um, so anyway. And uh, then um, to close the show, we, we have a... Well, there's been a big announcement during the week, which is um, it's it's not good. It's surprised a few people. Bizarre. Japanese government has announced their intent. Not, not only have they announced their intentions They're to resume gone. whaling, they've gone. And they basically... It was a very quick out-the-door comment. Um, <laughs> we're, we're off and... Uh, 
Yep. They're off whaling again. They're off whaling. And a few weeks ago, if you were listening to the program, um, we had Captain Peter Hammerstead from Sea Shepherd on the program talking about where things are at for Sea Shepherd and the great success of their campaign last summer, Operation Relentless, and how it brought about some some great wins for um, for marine conservation and preservation. No mention of this because at that point in time, Sea Shepherd, I don't know, we're going to clarify this, had no idea that this was about to happen. And then some rumours have started in the last few weeks and then suddenly the formal announcement. So we're going to be catching up with Adam Burling, he's media director for Sea Shepherd, uh, to talk about this announcement and whether or not this has changed Sea Shepherd's plans. They are about to oh, yeah. head down south and continue their great fight against yeah. um, uh, poaching, also known as illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what does this mean for their summer campaign? Are they going to about face and, and do what they do best, which is go down there and protect... Chase whaling ships. Yeah, chase whaling ships that are whaling actually in protected waters. This is yeah. the big thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's protected waters, uh, whale sanctuary, and they are Australia, supposedly um, Australia, uh, Australian regulated waters. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So what will we do? Mm. Maybe the other Greg, the other Greg yes. can do something about it. That would have anyway. been a very relevant question. So mm. I'm going to um, also ask Adam about uh, whether or not he's had contact with the Australian government yet mm. and what their response has been. I actually don't know what the answer to that is. So we'll find out. Interesting. Mm. Hey, and now I have noticed that out there it's cool. Yes. And it's, it's meant always to be hot. cool. Yeah, I know, but well, I don't mean just the green room in Triple R. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the world, the yeah. climate at the moment. And I don't mean that in a climatic sense. I meant the weather, actually. I'm getting there. Would you like a weather report? Yeah. Okay. It's, oh, this is the longest segue in the history <laughs> of the world. And it's because I'm still going, Seca. Seca. Um, the, <laughs> it's meant to be hot. Yes, 31 degrees. It's kind of perfect barbecue day weather. Yes. Partly cloudy, light winds becoming east to south-easterly, 15 to 20 kilometres an hour in the middle of the day, then tending southeast to southwest to 25 kilometres in the late afternoon, 25 kilometres an hour. It's going to be, um, that's a great that, barbecue day because right at the point when, when, you when it all kicks out, off, yeah, yep. it'll be warm in the sun, but then a beautiful southerly is going to come in. So perfect barbecue day weather and, series. And, and the thing is, it's going on like this for like half the week. Yeah. And it's going to be coolish, nice and coolish at night. Yes. And hot during the day, which is kind of okay. Yeah, although it's uh, not going to drop below 22 degrees on oh. Tuesday. Oh, I can't take Including it through the night. So t- <laughs> tomorrow... That's a technical term. It's for the meteorologists out there. <clears throat> that's, a, that's, a, that's a Doncaster term. I got that. <laughs> Seca! <laughs> Nine t- uh, tomorrow, top of 32, so around the same. And then 31 <laughs> on Tuesday with showers, possible storm in the afternoon. And then 26 and sunny on Wednesday. And then we're back down to the high teens for the rest of the week. Uh, the, oh, right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. The tide times at Weird. the heads. Uh, we are heading for a low tide at Port Phillip Heads at 10 to 2 this afternoon. That's probably the only relevant one that you need to know about. Surf forecast, small easing swell, fresh easterly wind, limiting surfing options today to protected breaks east of Melbourne water. No, east of Melbourne. <laughs> east of Melbourne. <laughs> Full stop. Water. Water temperature is 17 degrees. <laughs> oh, oh. One thing though, well, we knew what to do in Donnie in the 80s, but reading <laughs> wasn't one of them. I <laughs> seriously out, read that as east of Melbourne water. <laughs> hanging out in the underground car park and, you know, watching people set the Arvo. <laughs> 
That's it. Now, if you've ever been lucky enough to spot a sea eagle, you'll know they're incredible creatures, but unfortunately they face an uncertain future. Currently listed nationally as a threatened species, it's estimated there are only 100 breeding pairs left in the whole of Victoria. The Winton wetlands play a critical role in the conservation of white-bellied sea eagles. Each year, a single pair returns to uh, one nest to raise their young. The site's considered to be significant on a national scale, and it's critical for ongoing long-term conservation. Lance Lloyd is part of a group doing everything they can to draw attention to the plight of the white-bellied sea eagle and raise funds to secure this wetland and breeding location. He joins us now to tell us more and what you can do to help. Good morning, Lance. Hi, Bron. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for coming in. That's all right. On a Sunday morning. Um, let's start with a description, perhaps, uh, for... Let's just go straight to the white-bellied sea eagle. Can you describe it? What Are they... Massive birds. They're, they're, they're raptors, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're raptors. They're probably one of the largest uh, of the raptors. They're um, as big as a wedge-tailed eagle, which a lot of people will know, but um, they've got a beautiful uh, white breast and head and the four part of their wings are white, so they're very distinctive. Mm. And only 100 breeding pairs left in Victoria. Yeah, there's only 100 breeding pairs and um, they are concentrated um, around uh, the Gippsland Lakes and um, but uh, they are spread right through Victoria or certainly into the inland, yeah, up to the wetlands. Now, they're a coastal bird and you just mentioned inland. Whereabouts is uh, are the Winton wetlands? Whereabouts are they? Yeah, the, the Winton wetlands are between Benalla and Wangaratta. Um, and, so they're um, a long way inland. They are a long way inland. Yeah. There are populations along the River Murray as well, but, um, yeah, they're do it, doing it tough. Is that an unusual thing for seabirds to nest so far inland? Um, yeah, I suppose it is. It's certainly um, peculiar to the sea eagles, but uh, they really like um, the, the inland habitats uh, to, to breed because mm. they're generally more protected. So... Talk us through a little bit more about this problem with the white-bellied seagull in particular and, and Winton wetlands. Where, where has this problem come from? Yeah, well, the, um, the, the population's been declining um, over time and uh, generally what's been happening is the wetlands have been declining. Uh, we've cleared them, we've drained them, and we've built on them um, in, in large part. And so that the, the wetlands that are left uh, are the only places that the, the sea eagles can nest. So um, if they... Um, um, but one of the problems is that they're disturbed by people, so we need to create a safe zone around the, mm. the nest. Ha- has, um, has drought been a problem with them? this as well? It, it has been, yeah, because um, they need a lot of food to, um, to to get up to breeding condition and so in drought conditions there's not a lot of food around for them. So let's um, continue to talk a little bit about Winton wetlands. So we've established there between Benalla and Wangaratta. Um, are they currently, what's the status? Are they privately owned or...? Yeah, they're a bit unusual. Um, they, they are government land, but it's run by a, a committee of management that was set up to um, essentially run the restoration program for the site. Okay, so how does that work with committee of management and a, and a wetlands in particular? Because I know we have committees of management around the coast. How, how does it work with a wetland? Yeah, almost the same, really. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just a, a committee that's appointed by government and um, this one is probably a little bit bigger scale because uh, they've got a very uh, large area to look after and um, it's also quite a big program. We're sort of looking at the restoration of this site as a 100-year project. Okay, so... That's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Do they get funding from government to do their work? Uh, In part, in sort of... 
In part they do. Um, they've um, had a, an initial seed funding, but now the site needs to manage um, on, the, on the, that money plus uh, funds that they can get in through grants and otherwise. Okay. So talk us through this particular project. Are you on the Committee of Management? Uh, no, I'm not, not on the Committee of Management. No, I'm working as a restoration scientist for the, um, the wetlands for the, uh, on the staff. Yeah. Okay. And, then, and you're uh, connected through Save Our Sea Eagles as well? Yeah. Yeah. So talk us through this project and and where it's at so what we've we've got three nests um at the site but one is used regularly as their main um main breeding site and they come back there every year sometime between uh, june and um, january but mostly um uh, it's sort of june to september where they lay their eggs and then the the young are, are um grown up after that mm-hmm. so yeah so the Save Our Sea Eagles is a program to um, basically develop a, a wilderness zone within the site so uh, we need to um, um, protect it from human disturbance nest, yeah. and have you got um, I mentioned before we were talking about committee of management and how they're generally funded with your specific project have you got support from state or federal government? We're um, in discussions with the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, yep. DELP, I think, um, as part of the uh, Threatened Species Program, and we're trying to raise money which they're going to um, match the, the money that we raise. Yeah. Okay, so this is part of a broader program that they have. Uh, where d- uh, There are other... Uh, situations like yours as well they are they'll match it yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. oh that's great mm. um so how can well how can our listeners help obviously we're looking for uh, support as you know so many community-based projects that we cover here on radio marinara yeah if our, our listeners are interested in finding out more well and and helping obviously yeah yeah well probably the best thing is to look for save our sea eagles at the winton wetlands website Okay. And um, what are you hoping to do with the funding that's raised? Uh, Well, to create this uh, wilderness area, um, we're going to fence off part of the the, the area, one one kilometre margin around the the nest, but we're also going to create a a viewing area and we're going to put in a a video camera so that we can beam uh, what's happening at the nest back to our uh, uh, hub. Fantastic. Hub Cafe. I was just, um, Lance, as we were talking, I was fiddling on our Facebook site and have put up a link to, to what you said about the Winton Wetlands and Save Our, our Sea Eagles, and I was struck by the size of the Winton Wetlands. It's tiny, 8.7 hectares. <laughs> I mean, it's a little wetland, and I just think no. that whole... It, no, no, it's much, much it's bigger It's much than bigger, that. okay, yeah, it's sorry. Huge. Yeah, it's huge, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that no, restoration I, is 8.7 hectares. Uh, no, 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 yeah. the, the whole um, wetland site, I think, is... Um, Oh, gee, now I'm trying to struggle with the site. It, it it's is much huge. bigger. It's okay. much bigger, yeah. Because I was huge. thinking, gosh, those yeah, so sea guys are in trouble. Yeah, it's and Benalla. I think yeah. you need to... Is it about 1,000? Make sure. Yeah, Sorry. OK. Yeah, so we're trying to create 1,000 hectares of our reserve within the reserve, and I think there's something like 365,000 is the area. Oh, wow. I think what I need to do is read where the decimal points are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I think yeah, I've yeah, just yeah. moved the decimal point three spaces. I think you might have, Yeah. <laughs> And um, before we let you go, you've had some interest from Ross Wilson. We have, yes. yes. He He's um, put a Facebook post out to say that sea eagles rock. Yeah, <laughs> very <laughs> nice. That's great. Uh, well, good luck, Lance. Thanks very much, Thank- Ron. Thanks, Anthony. So thanks for coming in. And just, um, again, 
the pluggy, website? Pluggy website, yeah. Yeah, so it's all the W's, wintonwetlands.org.au. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming in. No problem. And uh, oh, have they arrived yet? That was my last question. No. They um, haven't? I, well, actually, the um, BirdLife uh, Murray Goldman did actually see them a couple of weeks ago, but I think they were just checking out the site. Okay. Yeah. Waiting waiting for that opportunity yeah. to come in and, and lay their eggs. Fantastic. Yeah. Good luck, Lance. Okay, yeah. thank you. Keep up the good work. I will. <laughs> and keep in touch with us as well. I'd love to hear how that goes on. One thing, Bron, that I've been thinking about, you know this kind of oft-quoted thing, oh, we know nothing about the surface. We know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the, you know, surface of the, the floor, uh, floor of the floor. ocean. Yeah. Yep. So we kind of, there was a really interesting article in the conversation um, which kind of tried to look at that and either debunk it or actually support it. Uh, and, and, and it was following actually some work done by David Sandwell's group at Scripps um, Ocean, Ocean, Institute of Oceanography in San Diego. His, his colleagues. And basically what they've done is they've actually mapped the ocean floor to a resolution of about five kilometres. So the entire right. ocean floor at a resolution of five kilometres okay. is mapped 100%. Wow. So think about five kilometres though. It, there's, there's a lot that can happen <laughs> in the five kilometres. Like, I don't know, what's five kilometres from where in downtown Brunswick here at Triple R? But that's probably almost the centre of Melbourne. It is. You know, five kilometres yeah. by the crow flies. So there's a lot can go on there. But anyway... It's a ocean start. floor, yep. Now let's compare that to the surface of Venus. <laughs> okay. Just because we can. Um, Magellan, um, in the, when was it, 90s, 2000s, mapped the surface of Venus to a resolution of 100 metres. <gasps> wow. 98%. Wow. 98% of the surface of Venus to 100 metres. Why? Who knows? Anyway. Because they can. Mars, okay. Mars. <laughs> 60% of Mars is now mapped to 20 metres. <gasps> wow. Yep. Um, meanwhile, we've got actually got the whole of the lunar surface, the moon, at, a, at around 100 metres and lots of it at 7 metres. Wow. Okay. So that puts in perspective the ocean floor. And you're right, coming back to what you were saying mm. about how much can, on the ocean floor, at, at, at that spatial level too... I know. I, I guess I'm not a um, uh, an expert in planetary surface, <laughs> yeah. but I imagine a lot of it would be dust, <laughs> a bit more dust, dust with a hole, yeah. dust with a bit a of a slope. Bit. Yeah. yeah, dust kind of heading up to a bit of a hill. Oh, look, a rock. Yeah, a rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, dust heading yeah. down, a bit of a slope. Yeah. And this is actually a good point because it, it, so. It, it, because if we then look at the hundreds of hundred metres, you know, that we do have on the surface of Mars or actually Venus, um, there's about 10 to 15% of the ocean floor, mm. which is about the size of Africa. Mm. If you then take it further down to the kinds of, um, you know, mapping that you might want to use if you're really trying to study the ocean floor, you know, metres, like the lunar surface, <laughs> parts of the lunar surface, it's 0.05%, <gasps> which is about the size of Tassie. Wow. Okay, so, and then if you think about it, and this is where maybe I don't really understand lunar seasons or Martian seasons or Venusian seasons, but if you think about, you know, a bit of the forest out of Melbourne, if you map that to metres, which is with the high resolution sonar or photography down to 0.5% of the ocean floor. So 99.5% not known. Mm. No, 99.95% unknown. Um, think about that in summer and then think about it in the winter. And so, you know, that's quite different. And so even if you might have a single data point on what it's like, you don't know what it's like for the rest of the year because, as you say, there's actually living things on that's it. That's right. And it's that's exactly different right. to the it's Martian the surface. It's right. It's mm. the ecology that makes the difference here. 
So this article was interesting because it was saying we do know more about the ocean floor and then by the end of it, it was a bit like the Muppets, you know, those two blokes up in the thing. They yeah, said, yeah. Oh, I love it, I love it, I hate it, I hate it, you know, and they kind of went. Yeah. And so the article, anyway, it, it, it builds this picture of knowing the ocean floor at a very high resolution and then knowing nothing at a resolution mm. in which you might actually care to manage it mm. or understand it or use it or appreciate it, whatever you want. Maybe that's what it's all is. about. Once you know what's there, particularly when it's on our own planet, there becomes a responsibility to look after it. Oh, you cynic, you're too oh, cynical just for just someone that grew up in Doncaster in the 80s. <laughs> On Radio Marinara. Old, old Anthony is cynical. <laughs> Have I got time for a couple of super quick snippets? Okay, very, very quick snippets. Very quick thank you firstly to Ken Flanagan who sent a beautiful collection of his images all kind of bound together as a hard copy book. Thank you, Ken. It's absolutely lovely. Um, so we're going to have a, a flip through that, but um, I just did want to publicly thank you on air for that. It was lovely. A couple of really quick uh, congratulations messages. One is to Scuba for Change who have been a guest on this program a couple of times now. Um, a quick summary, they are a Melbourne-based foundation uh, who contributes 100% of profits raised by organising scuba diving trips in the Philippines back, oh, wow. back into uh, a foundation based in Manila called um, the Stairway Foundation and they primarily exist to support kids um, on, on the streets and who've been caught up in trafficking and just absolutely horrendous. But wonderful that this uh, organisation in Melbourne does this work. Anyway, the, the bit of news is that they've won Melbourne Social Enterprise oh, Award, fantastic. which is really terrific, and that's happened during the week. Uh, so congratulations, all, everyone at Scuba for Change. Fantastic. For taking this out. Wow. So, yeah. Good on them. So well, well done. The Business 3000 Plus Awards, Melbourne's premier awards program for small business. So awesome. they obviously do a lot more than run a small business, but it's just wonderful what they've done. Also big, um, big ups to Hobson's Bay Council um, because they have announced that they're going to be increasing access to Williamstown and Altona beaches for people with a disability. Hmm. So this is uh, Williamstown and Altona beaches set to become some of Mel Metropolitan Melbourne's first wheelchair accessible beaches under a trial to be held this summer. So Particularly Altona beaches are great because it's nice and flat. Yeah. You can really, yeah, wow. You can go out With a long a way and shallow, yeah. Yeah, parking options too. So well huh. done, well huh, done. Absolutely great. Um, so the South East Council's Climate Change Alliance, or SECA with three Cs, is a network of eight councils in Western Port Catchment. So they're a group that supports communities, business, industries in the South East to do things about climate change. And I was thinking in a week where climate change was on the agenda because in Paris we saw a bunch of big-name people, big-name politicians talking about very big-picture targets for hopefully, hopefully doing something to arrest the impacts of climate change, which, of course, is all important to all of us. We thought we'd go and have a look at what's actually happening on the ground, preparing for and responding to the threat of climate change. So Greg Hunt is the executive officer of SECA with three Cs. Now, he's not the Federal Minister for Environment, and but, I've got to say, controversially, he's likely done more for combating climate change than his namesake in federal politics. We welcome him into the studio to talk about the real on-ground action to manage impacts of climate change. Good morning, Greg, and welcome to the studio. Yes, thanks, Anthony, and uh, good morning. Good morning, Bronwyn. Good morning, Greg. Great to, great to have you here. Let's start with SECA. So, yes. so what, what does SECA actually do with local communities? Okay, we're a, a, the group of councils, as you said, and our role is to do projects. 
So what a council does within its own municipal boundaries is its business. Where we can get a regional efficiency by doing some kind of project response to a climate change impact, we'll go out, seek the funding, set up the project, interact with the councils in its delivery, and that could be anything from mitigation, where we're helping communities reduce their their carbon emissions, or adaptation, because we've already got change underway and we need to respond to it. And and is there, are there equivalents to SECA across the Victorian coast and even inland? Yeah, Vic, the uh, Greenhouse Alliances are a peculiarly Victorian response. So okay. in other, other states, we don't have these Greenhouse Alliances. In Victoria, we've got nine alliances. They're self-selected by councils to work on issues of interest to the, you know, the region. So uh, you know, there's the uh, Western Alliance for Greenhouse Action, WAGA, mm-hmm. the Northern Alliance, NAGA, so you can see the, yeah, the whole trend coming in. We could have been SAGA, I suppose, <laughs> with the uh, SECA like instead. I like SECA, yeah. Can I say, you mentioned eight councils. Yep. Can we give them all a plug? Who are they? Yeah, we started at Brighton, so the city of Bayside, down through Kingston, Mornington Peninsula Shire, then um, city of Greater Dandenong, city of Casey, Cadinia Shire Council, um, Bass Coast Shire and Bulbul Shire. So Great. we go from Brighton yeah, down well. to Point Nepean, across to Inverloch, up to Mount Bulbul. There's a Great. lot of coast and a lot of important coast there. Well, which Bulbul's kinda... not quite coastal no, yet, yet, but it may well be unless we do something <laughs> coming out of Paris. Which is, which is actually a, 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 an excellent segue to my, my next question, which is about um, recently the, that area, Western Port in particular, was one of five coastal areas in Victoria to do a, a coastal hazard assessment. So, so I guess, could you talk us through what one of those is mm-hmm. um, and then how you actually go about doing one? Yeah, okay. Local government's got responsibility for implementing planning schemes. And so a proponent for a development will come along and say, I've got a bit of coastal property here and I want to put a particular development on it. It's up to the council to either issue a permit or refuse it. If they do issue it, they might put conditions on it to say, you have to build it this way or... Yeah, there's many windows be. or... That, yeah, that, yep, yep. That, that's right. Mm. So... Um, How do they make that decision and on what basis? Given that while there might be impacts now, and we certainly are seeing a lot of coastal impacts already, in the life of the asset for which the permit's being requested, it's likely there'll be more significant impacts. So the council's got to have some basis for making that decision. And um, if the proponent doesn't like it, of course, they'll hire them off to VCAT and uh, councils don't like spending time in VCAT. It costs them money. The ratepayers are upset about it, takes staff away. So better planning is quite important. So in the project that we did, the Westernport Local Coastal Hazard Assessment, we're trying to get an idea about what are the specific characteristics around the Westernport coast to which councils have to um, put into any decisions they make about planning. Okay, and how do you actually do that? You, you know, I can understand how you would look now and just kind of go, oh dear, those houses there or that business there is actually right at the high water mark and on a really high tide with a big wind, yep. it's actually flooded. Yep. But how do you do that for 30, 40, 50 years' time? Yeah, well, you work fairly closely with CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology who are the number crunchers. They've <laughs> got all the computer modelling to put in projections about if there was 0.2 metre uh, sea level rise, where would the water flow to and what barriers do you put in place to prevent it from going where you don't want it to go so you know it's a combination of what are the projections telling us is likely to happen what are the potential engineering solutions we've got to prevent the bits that we don't want from happening and then what's the precautionary principle we apply that might take into account the unforeseen uh, rate at which things might happen so put those things together and if you've got a council prepared to exercise a bit of courage and make the decision sure. because ultimately it is still a little bit of a, a ball gazing mm. um, then you might get a good coastal decision so in a way it's a little bit like it's the kind of 
longer-term equivalent of the, the fire planning that the councils around the Dandenongs and the Yarra yep. Valley, it's there, you know, it's kind of like, well, we have to make sure that houses can survive a fire yep. of this kind, but this is the, the coastal version of it. Yeah, I mean, look, I always remember Jason Alexander used to work for Land and Water Australia. He's got this wonderful quote about understanding the Australian environment. You've got to remember, droughts happen, bush burns and floodplains they're for floods. <laughs> and if you've got those things right, it's yeah. not a bad start for mm. then how are we going to live in this landscape and make sensible decisions about the kind of assets that we need to depend upon, the communities that we can build and how do we keep people safe and enjoying those that environment. Greg, you're talking about uh, councils being ballsy and making decisions. Do I'm you sure find... we use that word, but, you know, that was, yeah, that's fine. We know what you mean. <laughs> I must have just heard that in my head. <laughs> um how much, in your experience, is is it sort of consistent when it comes to climate change or are you still finding that there's a bit of variability in, in councils and their, um, how brave they are or how reluctant they are to, to, to kind of embrace those decision-making? Yeah. For better or for worse, councils are reflections of their communities and so the councillors who will be in those positions will apply their best you know, capacities to make whatever judgments are on the issues that are brought before them. And so you do get variation from one council to another because of the individual makeup of the of the members of that council. What we're looking for, I guess, is a more um, you know, universe, um, uniform statewide approach to things. And that's where things like um, that excellent qu- uh, um, committee some years ago that Nick Wimbush chaired on coastal climate change issues and options. Mm. And that came out with a proposal for a coastal hazards overlay which might be a single means right across the state to say if you want a permit for a development in an area covered by a coastal hazards overlay then you must enter a particular process. And that would give some certainty around the coast. Now you know, we perhaps have an opportunity to have a look at that again um, in the and next that, little while through the coastal planning process. That's a bit like the overlay that anybody would be used to, the fire overlay up in the that's hills right. or the yep. heritage overlay in Brunswick. Yep. Or yep. Environmental significance, yeah. land subject to inundation. So we do use overlays as planning tools and one that specifically referred to coastal hazard could be a very handy one. And so there's a, there's all kinds of maps and reports on the SECA website about mm-hmm. um, from out of this coastal hazard assessment, including, I've got to say, some scary stuff about what Western Port... Actually, how big Western Port will be. <laughs> You know, um, yep. um, which which as Western Port gets bigger, um, the bits around Western Port get smaller. That's right. And so the councils that you're dealing with, and so there's there's projections, as you said, of 20 centimetres, 50 centimetres, 80 centimetres. Yep. All of those, as I understand it from the work I've seen of CSIRO, are well within current projections. That's right. This century. That's right. And so we're talking, mm. in, in my mind, it's a bit like watching an incredibly slow train wreck happening mm. and there's time to move out of the way. Mm. Actually, there's a lot of time to move out of the way. But if we don't, and, and as, as you and Ron have both been talking about, it's about having kind of plans in place and a bit of decision-making guts to do something about it. Because I think, I suspect, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Greg, but I suspect some people will jump to the seawall yep. as the answer. Yep. And I'm just not sure the seawall is the answer. No, look, seawalls sea simply reflect energy or redirect energy. They don't dissipate or absorb energy. I mean, you know, I always reckon biomimicry's got a bit to teach us. Mm. You think about things like, well, the report, possibly apocryphal, but some years ago when Cyclone Yazia was hitting, there was a prawn fisherman had gone missing for a few days. After all the sound and fury had subsided, he simply sailed out of the mangroves yeah. where once he knew it was coming, he went right up deep into the mangrove forest. They absorb energy. 
Yeah. So he was able to ride it out quite safely. Now, you know, we seem to have forgotten that kind of stuff. And, you know, if we can build something, well, then therefore it must be better. So I guess that takes me to, you know, what, that are there ways to, to kind of stop this, and I'm sorry, excuse the pun, but rising tide of change, um, you know, that are a bit more natural? And is that the kind of stuff that SECA is promoting with the councils to get these, these solutions in place? Um, look, we're certainly looking at what's happening nationally and internationally. So we're involved in NCAF, the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility, uh, and we look at you know, that kind of advice that we can give our councils. I mean, we're running a, a risk meeting just this week with a guy who works in Canada with local governments a lot, with our risk managers, to see where can we learn from best practice examples and apply them in our context. And how do you mobilise local communities that have a... Um, sorry, this is my last question, but how do you mobilise local communities that have that... I mean, we do have a kind of a strange relationship with climate change. It's like we, we know it's coming, but we just don't want to engage. Yeah, look, that's a, it's a variable issue. Mornington Peninsula Shire had a much celebrated series of community engagement programs a couple of years ago where they, they got 3,000 people attend an aggregate of 12 two-hour workshops on climate change data because it was relevant to their area. Mm. So we weren't talking bushfires to people in Mornington, yeah. nor were we talking coastal flooding to people up on Red Hill. Mm. But if you talk about stuff that's relevant to people in their community, gives them a glimpse of what they might be facing and, importantly, what can they do about it, then you've got communities prepared to take up these issues because they know stuff's going on around them. Yeah, and, and really in this circumstance, every, every impact will be very, very local. Mm, that's and right, every exactly. kind of response will need to be that way. Look, good luck with it, Greg. And um, where will can people find out more info about SECA if they wish? Look, if they get onto our website, secca.org.au, so we're the South East Council's Climate Change Alliance. So I've put a link on our Facebook for those who wish to do. But, uh, Greg, thank you very much for coming in this morning and talking about SECA. Thanks for the opportunity. Greg Hunt, who is the uh, executive officer of uh, SECA, the South East Council's uh, Climate, Climate Change, Change Alliance. Awesome. Now, about a month ago, we spoke with Sea Shepherd's Captain Peter Hammerstead about what he and his team had planned for over the upcoming Southern Hemisphere summer. At that point, the focus was to be a continuation of last summer's very successful Operation Relentless campaign. Well, all that suddenly changed earlier this week when the Japanese government announced their intentions to resume whaling in the Southern Ocean, despite a ruling last year by the International Court of Justice that the program was not scientific and therefore illegal. So what is Sea Shepherd's response and what will the Australian government do if the whaling occurs as it has done in the past within its own protected waters. To address this sudden turn of events, we're very pleased to welcome to Triple R Sea Shepherd Media Director Adam Burling. Adam, good morning and welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, things have suddenly turned this week. I thought we might start by going back to 2014 with the International Court of Justice ruling. Can you talk us through that process and what happened? So, look, it's, it's the International Court of Justice uh, case against uh, Japan's um, whaling program, the JARPA-2 program, was always going to be a, a, a very interesting showcase because for many years, uh, you know, Sea Shepherd, uh, as well as, you know, the majority of Australians, have believed that the scientific basis for the whaling has been completely bogus. The, there is there was no substance, and that the um, Japanese government was flouting international law by continuing to slaughter uh, more than eighteen thousand whales over their program period. And so, once it actually got before the court, the highest court on this planet, um, it was proven. Um, 
proven beyond a doubt that they were not only breaching international law by conducting these basically commercial uh, whaling operations, but there was also there was no science. The, the, the science that they were putting forward was completely joke. Um, there were, there, this was commercial whaling and there was nothing else to it. And it was blatantly illegal. And so the Court of Justice made that ruling and last summer whaling ceased uh, and then this week to the announcement and um, certainly seems to have caught uh, everyone by surprise and not perhaps the cynics out there who hope for the best but maybe expected something like this. And um, I mentioned earlier we spoke with Peter Hammerstead only a few weeks ago and, and we kind of didn't cover this even as a possibility um, but it certainly seems to have been the case. Uh, what's, what's Sea Shepherd's response been? Look, immediately after the International Court of Justice ruling, Japan said they would abide by the decision. And uh, it wasn't long after that that they changed their minds, that they decided that they'd announce uh, a new program called NUPRA, uh, a new whaling program, that would kill more than 4,400 whales. And... um, they weren't being clear on when they would return. And as you stated last year, they didn't actually go out and and hunt. Um, So we weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, There was a lot of talk about resuming whaling, but there wasn't any dates. Uh, When confronted um, by the media, the Japanese government was saying that they weren't necessarily going to go down this year. Now, um, you know, Come, come a few weeks ago, the rumours started that they were returning. And then there was the announcement that the fleet would go down and would attempt to slaughter 333 minke whales. So, look, that um, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it, it, it definitely shows that Japan is determined to continue with this commercial whaling. What's, uh, so what's your response been, Adam, both for you and, uh, and also, um, you know, the enormous uh, army and team that is now Sea Shepherd? Um, what, what's your plans now for this coming summer? Well, this coming summer, look, Sea Shepherd has spent more than a decade defending whales in the Southern Ocean. We've saved the lives of 6,400 whales purely by direct intervention, putting our bodies our craft, our small boats in the way of harpoons. And so this year won't be any different in terms of we we have one ship uh, down here in the Southern Hemisphere. It was originally uh, focused, as as you said previously, just on illegal whaling, uh, illegal fishing. But this year what we'll do is basically we'll be conducting a Southern Ocean Patrol mission and we'll be targeting all illegal activity. We will be attempting uh, to halt the whaling, um, but we also be looking for the illegal fishing, which is a dev- has a devastating impact on 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 the Antarctic. Uh, look, the Japanese have um, dramatically increased the area of the kill zone. Um, you know, they, they always have uh, outgunned us in terms of the resources. They've got uh, state-of-the-art uh, harpoon ships uh, that are a lot faster than us. But, look, we'll be doing everything we can. We've got our, our, our team on the Steve Irwin, uh, some very experienced mariners. And, again, we'll just be doing everything we can. But we, you know, we shouldn't be there alone. Uh, which is what we have been. We, we, we should be there with the support of other governments, governments like Australia, who have promised previously to send down a customs vessel to halt this brutality.
Yeah, and th- I guess that's that leads me on to the next question about what does this mean if the government, if the Japanese government is going and despite the ruling of the International Court of Justice, they're going and doing it anyway. What kind of challenge does this set to them and how? Um, what, what sort of message does it send to them? Particularly, this is a real test of their law, isn't it, in, in terms of what happens when it's breached? Oh, look, it is. And, you know, we've got Japan on one side using the international courts to challenge uh, China over um, the South China Seas, um, over territorial disputes there. And then you've got, on the other hand, Japan completely flouting the law and ignoring the International Court of Justice ruling on this issue. Um, we also had the, um, just recently, a few weeks ago, we had the 2008 Federal Court ruling in Australia reinforced um, by the court. The Humane Society took uh, the whalers to court and the uh, federal court ruled that the whalers were actually in contempt of court and were fined a million dollars. So, you know, it's it's very clear and uh, Australia needs to act. Um, Australia, Senator Brandis has said in Parliament that uh, they would be trying all diplomatic options to start with and that they would look at um, the other option of a customs vessel. Look, we don't believe that's good enough. Uh, We've got uh, Prime Minister Turnbull um, in Japan in in the next week to talk with uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, in Japan about the purchase of potentially uh, Japanese submarines to talk about trade. Look, this is a massive issue for not only for Australians but uh, also internationally, and we need to show some force here and um, take take this on. That's right, and I understand the the need and the time and the place for diplomacy, but I I see this as law is law, and law basically once it's breached, it, it comes down to enforcement. And uh, and as you were saying, this is a real challenge for um, the Australian government, but other governments around the world as well. We've got a couple of minutes. Left. I wanted to ask you about Operation Ultimate Justice and uh, and what you're going to be doing in the US courts. Look, so ultimate, so what what we've had going is look, Japan has thrown everything at us. You know, as again, we're a small NGO, we're we're funded by you know people in the street. We're funded by people buying our merch. Um, you know, we run we, we run by donations of food um, coming to our ships. And we've been up against one of the largest economic powers on the planet. And what, not only have they been taking us on in the field, but they launched a civil case in the US trying to sue us for the costs of um, you know, the, the, the whaling, you know, the reduction in whaling that we've uh, been able to achieve. And to date, it's been very successful. The um, courts um, have ruled in their favour. But what we're doing now is that um, the, because we're being sued, it actually allows us to counter-sue. And the International Court of Justice ruling and the Australian, court, uh, Australian Federal Court uh, means a ruling that we can perhaps turn the tide against them. So we'll be using all our legal resources to take them on in the US courts. Fantastic. And obviously for that, you need funding. So here's an opportunity, Adam, to um, to put it out there to everyone who's listening to get behind Sea Shepherd. Um, the, uh, you have a very strong base here in Williamstown and a lot of support. And I know uh, everyone listening to this program and, and to Triple R in general, extremely supportive of what you do. Um, what can our listeners do to help you? Uh, look, 
Yes, as you said, look, we've got a huge support in Melbourne. We have thousands of people come visit our ship on the public tours. Uh, look, the, the, the biggest way you can support us is, you know, this Christmas, have a look at our online e-store at seashepherd.org.au. Maybe think about uh, buying some ethical gear from us, uh, show the colours, um, buy a gift card, you know, for your family. Um, if you have any spare cash, you can look at an online donation. You know, we are one of the leanest and meanest NGOs there are out there. Um, you know, we've got a huge, you know, most of our, um, our uh, on-the-ground force are volunteers. So... Yeah, you know that your dollars are going direct to the front line. They certainly are. I'm going to put in a, a plug for Goodwill Wines as well because you can buy Sea Shepherd um, Goodwill Wines, so all of the profit made right. from Goodwill Wines. I've already done that for this year. I'm going to go and buy another box, actually, because it's excellent <laughs> quality wine as well. Um, Adam, we've put all those details on our Facebook page and uh, we'll do likewise on the Triple R page for Radio Marinara as well. Um, all the very best for the summer coming up and we'll keep in touch through the summer and uh, report back when we're back on air next year. Great. Thank you very much for the support. Oh, always a pleasure. Good luck. All right. Okay, bye for now. Adam Burling, Media Director for Sea Shepherd, and oh, my God, what those people do. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.